0: Hey, everybody. In two weeks, we're going to release a fun episode, I hope, where we're going to take crisscrossing science to the movies. And we're going to talk about five different movies. And we hope that maybe you'll try to rewatch some of these movies in preparation for the episode so that you can listen along and appreciate some of the finer points that we're going to be talking about. When our next episode drops, we are going to talk about space travel as depicted in the movies. And so we've picked five movies that have space travel as an important plot device within the movies. These movies include Apollo 13, Gravity, 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Martian, and Interstellar. Now, we know that space travel happens in other movies, such as all the Star Wars, all of the Star Trek. However, in those situations, it's more just they happen to be in space. They don't really care about the mechanics of being in space or dealing with any of the physics or the science behind the space travel itself. And so we're going to talk about these five movies and talk about the actual science behind what the movies depict. And so I hope you'll join us and have some fun along the way. We'll see you then. McMinnville, Oregon, this is Criss Crossing Science, a meme disguised as a podcast. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Tower of Babel. Hey, Chad.
1: Good morning, Michael.
0: So recently, we got into a deep hole, as we were wanting to do, Yeah. talking about the word meme and how I said, well, I thought it was a a new word invented for the internet. And you said, no, in fact, it is actually a biological term that has been around since the 70s. Yeah. And it refers to how culture and language and things like that can, in fact, evolve over time, be transmitted similarly to genetic evolution and how there's actually active discussion within the biological world about these details. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to get kind of deep in the weeds today, but we're going to talk about one of these papers Mm -hmm. that goes into how similar are genes versus memes.
1: The goal of this paper was to understand how the ancestries of different human populations were related or not related to the ancestries of different language groups. Hmm. And that's a really interesting thing to think about for some reasons that I think we should maybe drop back and maybe build up towards first.
0: Yeah. Cause I mean, this is crisscrossing science, not crisscrossing linguistics. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, touche. Um, yeah. So if you think about ancestries in other kinds of organisms and their geographic distributions, it's generally the case, and this has been found over and over again, looking at lots of different kinds of species, it's generally the case that individuals tend to be more closely related to other individuals that they are nearby than they are to other individuals of their same species that live a great distance away. And so if we think about like a really broadly distributed species, like let's take the Douglas fir tree. Okay. It exists all throughout the Northwest here and all the way up into distant reaches of Canada. So it's a really broadly distributed tree species. And if you take two Douglas fir trees and you see who their parents were and then their parents, parents and they go on back in time, mm-hmm. you're eventually going to get to a point where they share a common ancestor at some point, right? Some sort of great grandparent will be a distant ancestor of two individual trees out here.
0: Right, they were Adam and Leave.
1: (laughs) 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 Okay, but if you do the same thing for a tree from here in Oregon and another tree from like way in Northern Canada, you would have to go back way further in time to get to when those two individuals shared a common ancestor. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? So maybe that's sort of obvious, and it's an overly complicated way of saying that individuals tend to be more closely related to other individuals who they live near than to individuals that they live a long distance from.
0: Well, I mean, so that's obvious with trees, because trees don't generally get up and move around. Right,
1: exactly. And so that, if we are talking about humans, and we look at, we follow the ancestries of different human groups, in the modern world, there's been a, you know, a few hundred years of more and more and more contact among different populations that previously had been isolated from each other. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to go back too far to get to a point where there there was a, a lot less contact among different human populations. And so then if you follow those ancestries back, you start to get to a broader understanding of humanity as this diverse assemblage of lots of different populations who've been isolated from some other populations for many thousands of years, and they might be geographically very far away. And then the closer and closer you get geographically to each other, the more and more recently they had diverged from each other. Mm. Let's say we go back a thousand years mm-hmm. and you compare two individuals living somewhere in the Amazon to each other. They would be much more closely related to each other than either one of those individuals would be to somebody living in, say, the Pacific Northwest at the time. Okay. But then collectively, all of three of those individuals would be more closely related to each other than to an individual living, say, in Europe at the time. And so you can easily find online histories of of different populations of humans. And it's really interesting to contemplate how that evolutionary history of different populations is related to the geographic distribution of these different populations. Sure. And so we call that isolation by distance. And then if you think about traits, physiological or morphological traits that might arise in one lineage, but perhaps not another then where that trait is found and the populations that a certain trait might be found in will often match that evolutionary ancestry, that branching tree that describes the relationship of these different populations to each other. Okay. And that's because like a morphological or a physiological trait is a thing that is going to have some sort of genetic component. And so it's not surprising then that different traits would also map very well onto a diagram that depicts the evolutionary history of different populations. Hmm. What gets interesting though, is if we start to talk about a trait of an organism that is not necessarily a morphological trait or a physiological trait, but instead is some sort of behavior. And especially if it's a behavior that has to be learned by a juvenile Mm -hmm. from perhaps the older individuals in its population, then we have the opportunity for some different processes to play out. And that brings us to this idea of a meme. If I use the word meme, M-E-M-E, that's mm-hmm. a fairly commonly used word right now. What does that call to mind to you and probably to most of our listeners?
0: Cats. <laughs> okay,
1: yeah, tell, tell me more.
0: Basically, I, I associate a meme as a picture with something pithy written on the picture somehow. Right. That you pass, you email to friends or you post it on social media somehow. Or...
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't have to be about cats. Right. And so, yeah. So most people are familiar with the meaning of the word meme as a piece of internet culture that gets passed around. Maybe it pops up in your email or on your Facebook page and you have a little chuckle and then you keep scrolling. Right. Mm -hmm. That's sort of a co-option of the original meaning of the word meme the word meme actually was first coined by Richard Dawkins, actually. Um, Richard Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist and a prolific author. And one of the books that he's more famous for is called The Selfish Gene, where he talks about things like learned behaviors as also things that can be transmitted from parents to offspring. All right. This book is from 1976. So the idea of a meme has been around for going on 50 years now.
0: Hmm. And so he was thinking like memes relating sort of like gene, like a passed down non-genetic gene type thing.
1: Yeah. And so in fact, in in the book, he actually says he explicitly wanted it to be a word that sounded like the word gene because he wanted it to call to mind the process of descent from ancestors to descendants. And so he's basically talking about a meme as the noun that conveys the idea of a unit of cultural transmission or a unit of imitation. He gives some examples of memes as things like a tune or an idea or a catchphrase or clothing fashions or a certain way of making pots or a certain way of building an arch. And so it's it's this expansive idea for a piece of information that can be transmitted from my brain to the brain of another individual. And that might affect the behavior of that other individual. Okay. And if you think about all of these things, it's obvious to see how that might, as a unit of cultural information, have a lot of the similar properties to a gene, which is a unit of biological information, right? So right. similarities include, they might get passed from an ancestor to their direct descendant. So there's vertical transmission, whether it's mm-hmm. a gene or a meme, it might change due to replication errors from parent to offspring. So if a descendant is learning how to do something from an ancestor, they might not do it exactly the same way. And that failure to replicate it exactly the same might introduce a little bit of a different outcome. And if you do that through time in the same way that small changes in a genetic code can build up to differences in morphologies and physiologies, small changes in a meme can give rise to differences in whatever this piece of cultural information is.
0: So like my corn pudding is not the same as my grandmother's corn pudding.
1: Yeah, and your grandmother's corn pudding might be different from her grandmother's corn pudding. And if you go back far enough, your great-great-grandmother's corn pudding might not have even been using corn. <laughs> <laughs> That's the idea. Let's see, what else? They might compete with each other. So a gene that results in organisms doing really well at the expense of members of the same species in in the environment, that favorable gene might become much more common and displace the less favorable gene in the same way that a meme might come to dominate or displace other memes okay like fashion would be a really good example of that but can you think of a really important difference between genes and memes
0: well i would say that genes are only passed on through replication from like parent to child directly uh-huh. whereas memes can just happen like i mean you're starting to dress like me now so <laughs> i was saying i don't blame the you way around
1: <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna have long hair here soon mike just wait <laughs> No, but your your broader point though is that a piece of cultural information, a meme, doesn't depend on being transmitted from a biological parent to a biological offspring. A piece of cultural information can be transmitted from any brain to any anybody else's brain. So that makes a big difference then in how we think about a meme and how it might spread and evolve through time versus a gene and how it might spread and evolve through time. A meme I <laughs> is freed from the constraints of that direct propagation from biological parent to biological offspring. A meme spreads by being the thing that your brain can't stop thinking about, and then also being the thing that your brain feels the need to transmit to another brain. Whatever it is about this piece of cultural information included in the memes that really spread widely is some sort of inclination in the brain that is hosting it to spread to other brains. That's why really catchy, funny internet memes get spread so and go viral. Or like a really catchy song, you want to listen to it, you want to tell other people they should listen to it. Part of that piece of cultural information is an inclination to want to spread it. All right. So anyway, that kind of lays the groundwork for thinking about pieces of cultural information and how they might or might not mirror the spread of biological ancestry. So Darwin was um, one of the first proposed that when we start to understand the evolutionary history of our species, Homo sapiens, he predicted that we would see a link between that pattern and the pattern of all of the different languages in existence on the planet. But if you group these languages into their major groups based on their similarities, you can kind of see some major different kind of language families. And so we as English speakers are in the much broader, very diverse Indo-European language family. And so that includes like all of the Romance languages like Spanish and French and Italian, Uh Portuguese, Latin, all the way out to including things like Russian and some of the languages that are spoken in India and other parts of Southern Europe, like Greek, for example. Right. So it's a, a big very diverse set of languages, but they're all related and descended from each other. Other language groups like Turkic is another big language group and Austronesian is another big language group. So these would be spoken in like Southeastern Asia and down into the indigenous cultures in Australia and out into some of the Pacific islands, for example. And so these are very distinct languages from each other that share a much, much more distant ancestry than those individual languages within the group share with each other.
0: Okay. So we can talk, for instance, about English. It's a Germanic language as opposed uh-huh. to the Romantic language, but we've we've definitely dipped our toes because of the proximity of England to France. There's a lot of intermingling between those. And so even though English, the structure and everything like that is is more closely related to German than it is to French, mm-hmm. we have a lot of English words that come from France, basically. Right. And I mean, a lot of examples would be like house would be from German, but a manor, you know, a fancy house, a manor would be from French. Mm. And But you're tracing back even farther than that, right? Because German and Russian are somewhat similar. They have some sounds that are similar in some structure. Chinese, Japanese, Korean, a lot of those languages have some similarities. But I'm assuming you're trying to go trace back even farther than that.
1: Yeah, that's right. So what you were describing of like the German Germanic languages and the Romance languages are all within this broader Indo-European family of languages. And collectively as a group, those Indo-European languages are distinct from a different family of languages like Austronesian family of languages or the Turkic family of languages. Because of the history of science and some certain amount of cultural bias, the Indo-European language language family history is a little bit more well known than some of these other language families. And so it's this is very much a work in progress, understanding how some of these language families are related to each other. But your broader point is exactly right. You need to go back even further into human evolutionary history to see where these languages, these very distinct language families converge with each other. Mm-hmm. So what Darwin proposed is that once we understand the complete evolutionary history of all the different kinds of human populations that we see geographically distributed across the face of the planet, we ought to be able to do the same thing for all of these different language families. And what we would expect to see is that history and evolution of different language families ought to map onto that history and evolution of different human populations in other words the more closely related two different populations are to each other genetically the more closely related we would expect their languages to be
0: the argument there I, I suppose would be that languages that are in close proximity with each other will tend to share some words and and so forth but just being in close proximity means that you're also tending to share your genes and so forth and exactly those up
1: so yeah exactly two things so as you said you're you're perhaps there's more gene flow between your populations in the here and now. But also importantly, is you probably share a more recent common ancestor. You go back a few, you know, great, great, great ancestors and you get back to what might appear to be two distinct populations now. If you rewind the tape far enough, you get to a point where they were drawn from the same source population.
0: Right. And and that's the key is that the, it's the source population that is basically transmitting both the genes and the memes. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well put. And so
1: that, that's what Darwin thought we might expect to see. It's a prediction that showed a lot of foresight because the methods for building evolutionary histories were not at all developed at this point. And so, by like the 1980s, 1990s, we had a good sense, at least in broad description of what the relationships were among different human groups. And also by that time, it appeared that if you did the same kind of work with different languages and how they're related to each other, that mapped onto the human evolutionary history fairly well, not perfectly, but pretty well. And it was thought at the time that those mismatches between the biological evolution history of certain human groups and what appeared to be their linguistic history, that mismatches between those two things were the exception rather than the norm.
0: Ah, okay. Okay. But now, based on your language right now, where you're very specific to say Darwin said this mm-hmm. and the 80s and 90s people would have said this, mm-hmm. I'm picking up that we don't say this anymore.
1: <laughs> well, so subsequent to that, people started picking up on some of these mismatches and actually suggested that the language shifts or, or mismatches between the genetic history of a population and their linguistic history are actually much more pervasive than originally thought, huh. and that that had a huge effect On shaping our contemporary language diversity. And some even went so far to argue that associations between the genetic history and the linguistic history of populations, that that was the exception rather than the rule. And so the the pendulum sort of swung in the other direction, arguing that no, the reason people speak the language that they do is due more to the recent history rather than the language traveling along with the evolutionary
0: descendants. Well, yeah, I mean, I could see the argument now, especially. I would say like in the last 100 years or so, when travel across the globe has been more prevalent, that this would probably break down.
1: Yeah, just within the last 100, 200 years, when there's been such a rapid increase in connections of human populations across the globe, I totally agree. And so it's interesting to think about what the consequences of that will be into the far future. But in terms of biological evolutionary change, that window of time is just an eye blink. Because of that, we still do see evidence of the evolutionary histories of different human populations, Mm -hmm. even despite the past 100 years or so of a steady increase in contact and genetic mixing among lots of different populations. Mm. So anyway, this recent paper that came out that got me to thinking about this Mm -hmm. suggested that, okay, we've got these two kind of competing schools of thought, The sort of a large association between biological history and linguistic history is what we would expect. And mismatches are the exception. And on the other hand, the school of thought that language spreads and shifts and changes so rapidly that it should be uncoupled from the biological history of humans. And that where we do see associations between the two, those are the exceptions.
0: Right. I mean, so So what I just said would be with them of like recent history, I would agree with that, that it's very easy to switch language. Mm -hmm. But they're saying this even without, if we cut out the last 200 years, they're saying even then it's a mismatch is more regular.
1: Uh, Yes, I think that would be their argument. And so what this paper does then is it tries to use more recent evidence for both biological evolutionary history and linguistic history to see how much overlap is there between the two and where there are mismatches. What can we learn about that mismatch and what it tells us? So to build the evolutionary family history, they used genetic evidence. And then to build the linguistic evolutionary history, they used evidence from the field of linguistics itself, as well as anthropological evidence and other kinds of historical evidence to try to recreate the relatedness of different languages to each other, and then to these groups of languages, to other groups of languages.
0: It seems to me it's a question of if there is significant travel or if mm-hmm. there is significant conquering, then the second group would be correct. If it's mainly people are mostly just kind of staying in place and maybe you interact with the next town over, but that's about it, then Darwin and Hizok would be that. Yeah. That seems to me the breakdown line to me. Of like historically, is it the case that people are traveling around a lot or are they not?
1: Yeah. So, what you're describing is a situation where we start to see these mismatches between the genetic history of populations and the linguistic history of populations. And so, when do we see a population living near other populations that don't share the same genetic history? Or when do we see a population living near other populations? that does not share a linguistic history mm-hmm. or both. And right. so they, they define kind of these three possibilities that I'll just kind of lay out there and then we'll maybe think through what would have to happen for each of these to happen, right? So mm-hmm. they called these enclaves and the first enclave type that this paper talks about is a matching enclave, which is a situation where a population is genetically related and they speak the same language, but they are, are distinct from their nearest neighbor in both ways. So like population A also speaks language A, but they're nearby. Population D that also speaks language D and they remain distinct from each other.
0: And the assumption here, when you say nearby, is is not just like as the crow flies. We're I mean not nearby.
1: I'm sorry. I mean nearby, as in the sense like they know about each other and they could potentially be in contact. Okay. Okay. So that's the case where genes and language have traveled together and remained matched up with each other. Okay. The second case, and where we start to see mismatches, they describe. A couple of different mismatching enclaves. They call one a genetic enclave and they call the other a linguistic enclave. So Mm -hmm. think about a genetic enclave. This would be the situation where two distinct populations genetically, so population A is related to other similar populations that all kind of share a same genetic history. But then there's this other portion of that population or another nearby population that has a very different ancestry. That makes sense. Nevertheless, everybody is speaking the same language. Oh, okay. And that that
0: could be from a conquering situation. Yeah,
1: exactly. And the other mismatch is a linguistic enclave. And so this is a situation where genetically related groups of people have one portion of that related group speaks a language that is from a completely different family of languages. So it's sort of the opposite, right? So they might, their enclave, perhaps it's a little town or a small little region or something, and they are completely surrounded by people who speak A completely other language. However, if you were to follow the family histories of these individuals who are speaking these different languages, you actually don't need to go back very far until you find common ancestors.
0: Well, I could see another, maybe the coastal area trades with and is in regular contact with other things that can be reached by the sea. But then if you go inland more, where it's more difficult to reach, Mm. then the culture would not actually pursue. Yeah.
1: Or a concrete example might be the history of conquest of North America and the forcing of English language onto all of the First Nations people in North America. Mm. See the difference in what a linguistic enclave versus a genetic enclave? Right. So those are kind of the two ways that we might have a mismatch, right? And remember, a little while ago, we said that it's it's in these mismatches where things kind of get interesting, and we can understand something a little bit more. And so... So they went through in this particular study, they found 52 different cases of enclaves, which again, basically is the idea that there is a group of people who are speaking a different language and or are genetically distinct from most of the rest of everybody that they are surrounded by geographically. Mm. In cases where they found populations of people that were distinct in some way from most of the rest of the population that they are surrounded by, 52 cases of that, they were matching enclaves, which basically is the case where you've got a group of people that migrate somewhere. Mm-hmm. By migrating, you are bringing along your ancestry with you. And then they also brought their language along and then held on to that language. Okay. Then as far as the mismatches go, they found that 27 turned out to be genetic enclaves. That's the case where despite being very distantly related biologically, they nevertheless spoke the same language or very similar language.
0: All right. And there was
1: only one case of a linguistic enclave. That's the case where it's the language that differs despite sharing very recent common ancestry biologically. And so that probably says something about which one of those two situations is either easier to happen or more likely to happen. So it seems like it's much more common for a language to be transmitted to a distantly related group of people than it is for a closely related group of people to accept and take on a distantly related piece of cultural information. Mm. And it, the the authors make the point in this study that it, what that suggests is that for a language to persist, it's really hard for that to happen if the genetic population speaking it goes extinct, often if a genetic population is the only remaining group of people that is speaking a certain language, if that genetic population goes extinct, typically that language goes extinct.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So so all, all that, I, I just find that really interesting to, to think about how ideas like a language words for things, phrases, things like that, sort of either do or do not travel along with groups of people as they move around Mm -hmm. on the landscape and encounter other groups of people. And then when I saw these evolutionary history diagrams, it got me to thinking of, not sure what that means, (laughs) sort of in a moral arc of the universe kind of way. But there you go.
0: So you're comparing like a musical earworm to a parasitic earworm. <laughs>
1: right? Yeah, right. A nematode, an ear nematode. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know,
1: I think the differences are obvious, right? Between a piece of cultural information and a piece of genetic information. But it's really interesting to contemplate their similarities and how through this methodology of creating a, a diagram of their evolutionary histories, we can and see how they do or do not co-evolve and diverge with each other mm-hmm. and the circumstances in our own human history, wars and conflicts and migrations and populations going extinct or populations vastly expanding into new territories and then retracting again and leaving behind their cultural legacy. It's interesting to contemplate how all of that human history maps on to the actual genetic legacy of different groups of humans.
0: All right, I'm going to... Have to stew on that for a little bit. Thanks for letting us think about this today, Chad. Sure. This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rody Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and rating and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas or thoughts that you would like us to contemplate on our show, email us at crisscrossingsciatgmail.com, all one word, all lowercase, or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening.